My name is Mike Geike, and it is my pleasure to be with you guys here today. I'm one of the pastors um, uh, here at First SF, and it's a pleasure to be with you on this Father's Day. So I saw this tweet yesterday that sort of reminded me of my history of church on Father's Day, and the tweet was by a pastor, and it said this, Mother's Day, pastor preaches on mom's awesomeness. Father's Day, pastor tells dad to get his act together. That was my experience, but that is not us, because what we do around here is we don't even let Mother's Day or Father's Day get in the way at all of what we are preaching or teaching. We stick to the text. So I also taught on Mother's Day this year, I preached about God passing between the chopped up body parts of lots of animals. And today I get one of God's most feel-good, heartwarming daddy stories in the Bible, The story of Abraham very nearly slaughtering his promised son. (laughs) I promise you today, you are going to have all the feels. But I'm excited. It's a powerful story. Let's pray and jump in. God, thank you so much uh, for the grace of a new day. God, I'm so grateful as I stand here this morning, as I do every week, just looking around this room and knowing that there's not one person here by chance. God, I don't know what everybody brought into this room this morning, but you do. And every person here this morning is here for a purpose to hear from you. God, I pray as we study what might be a familiar story for many of us, God, I pray you would reveal yourself to us anew and afresh. I pray everything this morning would be about you and would make much of you and that you would be pleased by what happens here today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We are going to be in the book of Genesis again today. If you're new to God's word, Genesis is really easy to find. It's the first book in the Bible, Genesis, and then you're going to go to chapter 22, the big number 22. And we're going to read um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 22 through, through verse 14. It should be on the screen. Would you guys read along with me as I read this passage? After these things, God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both, they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, lay your hand on the boy, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. I think if we are honest, we all have to admit that this is one of the most, and a word that my kids use all the time now is they say, Dad, that's cringy. This is one of the most cringy stories in the Bible. Who, who can read this and, and not think at some level that God is cruel, asking, God to do, asking Abraham to do something so terribly horrific? Just imagine as you read this, Abraham and Isaac in this story. This is a hard story. And as a father, it is incredibly hard to fathom being in Abraham's shoes in this story. But this is also an incredibly powerful story. So growing up, I heard, I've heard this story many times. I remember I had my children's Bible, had this story in there. It was a horrifying story as a little boy to read. But I've always heard this star, story sort of taught in terms of what sort of dramatic sacrifice that God might call you to make or what might happen if we disobey God, what he might do to us if we don't do what he tells us to do. This is a story of obedience, and it is a story of sacrifice, but I believe that, that more than that is it a story about what is behind Abraham's obedience and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. I think this is a story of Abraham worshiping God, of Abraham fearing God, of Abraham trusting God. I think at its core, this is a very relational story about the relationship between Abraham and his heavenly father, God. We see in this verse that Abraham worshiped God. So God tells Abraham to take his only and his beloved son and offer him as a burnt offering. So we see Abraham takes Isaac. We don't know how old Isaac was in this story. Um, he very likely was not the young boy that many of us may think he was, um, that my children's Bible had a picture of that scared me to death as a kid. We don't know how old he was, but the word boy does not mean a boy like we often think of it. He was probably either a late teen, maybe even in his early 20s. We know that he was big enough and strong enough to carry all of the wood required for a burnt offering. We also know that he was well aware of the processes and procedures of a sacrifice. He knew exactly what was supposed to happen in that environment. So, Abraham takes Isaac, he takes a couple of other men with him, and he sees in a distance the mountain that God has directed him to. And then in verse five, he tells the, the other young men to wait while he, he and Isaac, it says, while we go over there and worship and come again to you. He is about to sacrifice his son, and Abraham tells the men, we are going to worship. Abraham is saying something extremely significant and extremely relational here as he uses this word worship. This does not mean that they were gonna go up on the mountain and sing Hillsong music or praise choruses or my personal favorite, extremely rich theological meaty hymns. 
If we think that worship is just the time in the service where we sing, that we're missing something very big in the idea of worship. Worship may include singing, but worship is, is much, much more than singing. It starts at a deep heart place in each of us. And then that deep heart connection that we have with God manifests itself in many ways. It can manifest itself in singing, but it can also manifest itself in acts of service or acts of obedience or acts of sacrifice. I love how John Piper defined worship here. It says this. He said this, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then to respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. So think of that as Adam takes his one and only beloved son up the mountain. Abraham was responding from his heart to his relationship with God. Abraham was worshiping. And they begin this walk to this place of sacrifice. I think one of the hardest parts of this story is when Isaac starts to put all the pieces together. He says, hey, Dad, so I see all the tools for the sacrifice, but I see no thing to sacrifice. In my imagination, which is solely my imagination, I imagine Abraham walking ahead of Isaac. I imagine that Isaac can't see Abraham's face. And I imagine Abraham just calmly giving Isaac an answer while his face grimaces at what he is about to do. But he knew that if he failed to obey God in that moment, he would be worshiping Isaac over God. I know so often in our own parenting of our kids, we have had to lead them into things that are painful for them. And they're also painful for us. But we do it because it is what God is leading us or calling us to do. I know for us, our kids haven't always understood why we couldn't participate in travel sports teams because it would take us away from church or when we told them they couldn't go to certain events or hang out with certain people or when we moved them across the country or when we said no to something that they really wanted, disruptions to their lives, their disappointments that they face as a result of our leading can be hard for them, obviously, but they also can be hard for every parent, even when we know that we are doing what we are supposed to do and these things must be done. We, like Abraham, might keep a brave face or speak with confidence about what we're doing, but it still hurts deeply. Imagine how this hurt Abraham because how much those things hurt for us, none of us will ever had to and will never have to face the walk that Abraham is walking at this moment. Abraham worshiped God in his willingness to hand over to God the greatest gift that God had ever given to him. Then Abraham builds an altar and he ties up Isaac and he puts him on the altar it's crazy to think about that scene. And if you consider that Isaac was not a young, helpless boy, he was very likely big enough and old enough to fight back, but apparently he does not do so. That makes this scene even harder because what that evidences is this immense trust that Isaac had for his father Abraham in that moment. It's an amazing picture. And then Abraham is poised over 
Isaac with a knife in his hand. He is ready to slaughter him, it says. And God stops him with these urgent words. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on your son. Don't do anything to him. And then God says this, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is a story of Abraham worshiping God. And this is a story of Abraham fearing God. It says, God spared Isaac because Abraham feared God. This idea of fearing God, I think, can be really confusing. And I spent a lot of time looking and studying this week. And I love um, this picture that Martin Luther painted. He, he compares and contrasts different types of fear. He described two types of fear. The first one he called a servile fear. He said a servile fear is the type of fear that a prisoner might Uh, feel when he's in a torture chamber and it's the fear that he has for his tormentor or the fear that he has for his jailer or the fear that he has for his executioner. It is a deep foreboding anxiety in which someone is frightened by the very real danger that is posed against them by another person. Servile fear indicates a a posture of servitude towards some malevolent or cruel figure. And I think many of us, when we fear God, that's what we think of. There's something in us that thinks about him in that way. But, but fear of God, Luther said, is not servile fear. It is filial fear. Filial has its Latin roots in a word that means, it signifies the relationship between a mother or a father, between a parent and their son or their daughter. A filial fear, sort of fear that a child has for a parent. A child has fear For a parent because that is born out of a tremendous love and a tremendous respect for their father or mother. And they desperately want to please them. That child might have a fear or an anxiety of offending the one he loves. Not because he is afraid of torture or afraid of punishment. But rather because he is afraid of displeasing the one who is in his world the greatest source of love and security that they have. Fear of God is a relational idea. And God saw in Abraham's willingness to obey him in this moment, God saw that he had a filial fear. He saw in Abraham a man who loved him and who respected him and who wanted to please him and who ultimately trusted him and found security in him and loved him more than he trusted or loved any other being. Filial fear is the type of fear because it is a a fear that is based on love. Filial fear is the type of fear that destroys every other sort of fear. And this is the sort of love relationship that God desires with us. Abraham worshiped God and he feared God at his core. And out of that, Abraham trusted God. There's a really interesting verse in the book of Hebrews, I think, that that helps round out this picture of this intimate, trusting relationship that Abraham had with God. It'll be on your screen. It's in Hebrews 11. It starts in verse 17, where it says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, so Abraham was the one who received the promises. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of who it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What this is telling us is that Abraham wasn't just offering up his beloved son. He was offering up his son 
through whom the promises of God were to come. So imagine, like, imagine God offers, offers um, he promises you the money that you need to pay your rent. And you get the money, and you're about to pay the rent, and then God says, you need to give that money away. If that was the case, you would have to trust that somehow God was going to provide the money for the rent, even though he was now telling you to give what you thought was the answer to the promise away. Hebrews eleven nineteen finishes this out, and it gives us this amazing glimpse into Abraham's trusting mind. It says, he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. This gives this dimension to Abraham's fear of God that we just read about in Genesis 22. His fear of God, his filial, fatherly fear of God was grounded in his trust that God would somehow fulfill his promise through Isaac. That if he sacrificed him, then God must be intending to bring him back. Abraham didn't trust God because he had learned a lot about God. In fact, he had no educational resources at all to know God. This wasn't about his intellect. It wasn't about stout apologetics. He trusted God because he knew God. He had walked with God at this point for well over 25 years. He had waited on God. He had experienced good and bad with God. And because of all of that, he trusted the core of God's character. He knew he could trust God because God had proven himself trustworthy in the course of his relationship with Abraham. In the Genesis and in the Hebrews passages, I think we see three really important dimensions to Abraham's trust of God. And I believe wholeheartedly that many of us in this room, even though we say we trust God, we deeply deeply don't. And because of that, I want to spend just a little time digging into these three things because I think it's so important that we begin to dig into whether or not we really trust God. We see in these passages, I believe, that Abraham trusted the promises of God, that he trusted the power of God, and that he trusted the provision of God. He trusted the promises of God. You remember that Abraham uh, that God made Abraham a promise. He, made, he entered into a covenant with Abraham. He promised him a son, which happened. And he had promised him abundant blessings to come over many years through that blessing. At this point in his life, he trusted that God would fulfill that promise even if he sacrificed Isaac through whom that promise was to come. And I wonder, do we trust his promises like that today? I think the real problem is that I'm not sure that we really know his promises. I think we have to be careful what sort of promises we think God has made to us. Because there are many, many things that we desperately want that we treat as promises of God, but most of those things have not been promised us. He has not promised us health. He hasn't promised us long life. He hasn't promised us riches or really even comfort. He hasn't promised us a spouse. He hasn't promised us kids. He hasn't promised us good kids. He hasn't promised us a great job. He hasn't promised us tax deductions for charitable giving. He hasn't promised us a comfortable retirement. 
At least he has not promised us those things in here. And this is the most trustworthy revelation of God to us that we have. He may have promised you those things one-on-one. He may have. But we have to be careful because our deep desires can so often trick us into thinking that God has promised us something that he has not. A counselor once challenged me. He said, I'm going to challenge you. Quit expecting things that, that you want so desperately, but things that God hasn't promised you. You know what he challenged me? He said, this book is full of promises. And every promise God makes to you in this book is guaranteed a yes. The problem is we often want promises that relate to our circumstances, but the promises of God transcend our circumstances. They are promises like joy and peace and fruitfulness and purpose and fulfillment and abundance and hope and hundreds more promises. Years ago, I remember this so clearly. God was calling me to very essentially, in the most real way, to sacrifice certain parts of my life in which I had found identity. But these things were contrary to what it the life he was calling me to lead as a Christian, and I was afraid. I was not like Abraham. I questioned whether or not God could provide me as, as much pleasure and joy and hope as I had found in the life that he was calling me to lay down. And I struggled to trust in his promises for me. But I did lay that life down, and God was faithful to his promises. Did I still struggle? Yes. Was I lonely at times? Many. Did his promises take time to come to fruition? Yes. Am I still waiting on some of those promises? Yes. But as I began to read and look for his promises and I wrote them in my journal and I claimed the yes that I'm promised for those promises, I began to experience them and I found joy in my obedience and many other promises came true for me. Sometimes God leads us to difficult, risky things. He may lead us to quit a job or to take a job. He may lead us to end a relationship. He may lead us to run from sin. He may lead us to give something up or to take something on. And often we refuse to follow him because at the end of the day, we don't really trust that we will find joy and peace and purpose and fulfillment or whatever it is that we are really looking for in the things that he is calling us to. We don't believe we will find those things in obedience. Well, we, like Abraham, trust in his promises. Abraham trusted in his promises, but he also trusted in the power of God. If you believe that God will keep his promises, then you also have to believe that he is powerful enough to keep them even when our circumstances seem impossible. Abraham believed that God was powerful enough to raise Isaac from the dead in order to fulfill the promises that he had made through Isaac. He had seen God at work. He had seen the power of God displayed in his own life when his elderly, barren wife bore him a son. Often miss the magnitude of the power of our very modern world and in our Western mindset. I think we often miss the magnitude of the power of God in our lives because we chalk everything up to chance or to luck or, or our own skill or our own tenacity. I think we have to ask ourselves if we really believe that we serve an all-powerful God. Abraham had only his personal knowledge of God, but we have so much more. We have this. We have this amazing testimony to his power. 
We have, as it says in Hebrews 12, we have a great cloud of witnesses who have attested and attest to his power. We have our own life journeys. Did you ever consider that every blessing in your life is a testament to his power? Did you ever consider that your life itself is a testament to his power? Or the world that we live in is a testament to his power. We learned when we started this study in Genesis, he spoke it all into existence. Our hope cannot be in the power um, of God to do the things just that we want him to do. He has that power. But the power that fuels our willingness to obey in very difficult things is his power to fulfill his promises, not our desires. And that means that we may want some certain thing, but we trust that whether we get that thing or not, we will have joy. We will have abundance. We will have peace, no matter how impossible that thing may seem at the moment. Abraham trusted his promises. He trusted his power. And Abraham trusted in God's provision. These all go together, his promises and his power and his provision. Look at this. He named the place where all of this happened He named it the place God messed with my mind. He named it the place God scarred my son. He named it the place I never, ever want to think about again. No. He named this place the Lord will provide. He knew as he walked up that mountain with Isaac, he knew that somehow, some way, the Lord would provide the means for, for, for the fulfillment of his promises. And to know God is to know all of his character. It's to know his faithfulness to his promises. It's to know his power to fulfill his promises. But it's also to know that he is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. What we often do when we doubt his provision is that we panic, we manipulate, we hold tightly to the things that God may be calling us to give up. We do many things that we do not evidence, that that evidence that we do not trust that the Lord will provide. I know I feel this way most often in the area of finances. Even though he has always provided what we need, I still Struggle to trust in God's provision. But you know what helps me eventually to trust again? It helps me to remember the absolute truth that God has always provided for us. Maybe not like we would have wanted. Maybe not as much as we would have wanted. Maybe not in the timing that we would have wanted. But he has proven to be Jehovah Jireh. A provider of everything we really need. And when I dwell on that truth... Scary obedience is easier and easier. Abraham had so much less than we do to back up his worship of God, to back up his fear of God, to back up his uh, belief in God's trustworthiness. And what God asked him to do was harder than anything he will ever ask you or me to do. We have full access to this collection of his promises. And we can be in a relationship with God because of the ultimate proof of his trustworthiness. Because God did himself what he spared Abraham from doing. He sent 
God sent his only and beloved son. He sent him to this earth to be a sacrifice for us. And just like Isaac, Jesus didn't fight back. He trusted his father. He was the ultimate provision of a sacrificial lamb who was sacrificed for us and went willingly to the cross so that every promise that God makes in his word might be ours. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says this, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is the only proof of God's trustworthiness that we should ever need. But we cannot worship him fully. We cannot fear him rightly. We cannot trust him wholeheartedly if we do not know him. To know him is like knowing any person. You only know someone through time spent with them, through talking to them, through listening to them, and through a vulnerable, open spirit that is necessary for any real relationship. If you don't know him today or you want to know him better, there's nothing we would like more than to help you. And if that is you, write it on a card, leave it, we will get in contact with you. I want to close today with one question. What is your Isaac? What is the one thing that is so precious to you that you, instead of really worshiping God, you are worshiping it or worshiping them? What is the thing that you hold so tightly to that in essence you value it more than God? Now I want you to think about that thing, but it is not so much about that thing It is about what that thing means to you in relationship to you and your relationship with God. This morning, I want you to look into your hearts and ask yourself, where do I struggle to trust God's promises? Where do I struggle to trust his power? Where do I struggle to believe in his provision? Will you worship, fear, and trust God enough to surrender control of what is most precious to you? I know that I don't trust God in the way he desires. And I know that as a father who greatly desires my kids to trust me, I know that my lack of trust grieves his heart. But here's the thing about a real relationship and especially one with the eternal, all-powerful God of the universe who also says, says, God's word says, is the perfect father. God does not wash his hands of you and turn away from you in your failure. He gets you. He wants to know you. He knows that in your adoring him, you will find your greatest joy. And he wants to show you. He wants to show you the depths of who he is. He wants to show you the reality of his trustworthiness. He wants you to fear him with a filial fear because he wants to be your father. We're gonna close now with just a time of quiet in this room and I want you just to spend some time with God. Maybe you cry out to God in confession this morning. Maybe confessing an area where you disobeyed because you didn't believe what God had for you could bring you the sin that he was calling you to lay down. Maybe you spend some time asking God to help you know him more. Maybe this morning, symbolically, you just need to release the thing and spend some time worse tightly to. But maybe for some of you, it's a time to just simply spend some time worshiping, 
responding in your heart to your knowledge of God by expressing to him in this time of quiet how much you value him, how much you treasure him, how much you prize him, how much you enjoy him, and how, much, how satisfied you are with him above any other earthly thing. I don't know what it is for you this morning, but I encourage you during this time of quiet, go honestly and open, openly to the Lord from your heart.